I think there has been a large shift within the conservation community. And there has been a shift to understanding that the, the individual animal does matter because there's a recognition that these populations are made up of individuals. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. It's season seven, folks. Yeah, seven. This is my seventh consecutive year interviewing people and hosting this podcast as part of my job with the Fur Bears. It's been an absolute blast and honor to get to interview people around the world and learn more about wildlife advocacy, ecology, biology, and other natural sciences, history, anthrozoology, philosophy, and more. And it's been incredible to share it all with you. I'm also proud, exceptionally proud, that this podcast has been a place of learning and growth. We've received comments from hunters and trappers who, while they may oppose the opinions at times, see value in learning more and adapting their worldviews. I've heard from folks who have made choices to become more compassionate in their day-to-day lives. And I've spoken to many who are thankful for the open and frank conversations about mental health, self-care, and compassion fatigue. Before we get into this episode, I want to thank my colleagues at the Fur Bears for supporting this podcast when I started and was flailing. Please, never listen to the first season. I need to pull a George Lucas and Atari ET that season in the desert. My colleagues have continued to support it, and I'd say Executive Director Leslie Fox is one of the biggest cheerleaders I have. I am grateful for that support. Always. And for the first episode of this new season, I wanted to hit a few different themes. It's back to school time, I want to talk about compassionate conservation, and we are all looking forward to hearing me say tenants instead of tenants numerous times. It just made sense to talk to Dr. Kristen Walker. Dr. Walker is a professor and researcher at the University of British Columbia who teaches a variety of ethical and welfare-focused animal courses, conservation biology, animal behavior, and wildlife management. The subject of compassionate conservation, however, is drawing more and more students to Dr. Walker's lecture halls and guidance. And in addition to discussions on coyote coexistence research, the difference between comfort, fear, and habituation, and more, compassionate conservation is where we started our conversation. I think that the the obvious place to start as we're going to be talking a lot about this subject is compassionate conservation and what that actually means. Uh, How do you present to a layperson what compassionate conservation is? So the, there's been a, a movement in the past years for this area within compassionate conservation. So one of the things that we talk about within there is bridging the disciplines of conservation biology with the disciplines of animal welfare science. So in conservation, we're taking into account more the population or the ecosystem level. And in animal welfare, we're focusing on the individual animal. So if we can bridge those two together, then that is kind of how I start to describe what compassionate conservation is. And then within compassionate conservation, there have been developed over um, the past few years some basic principles of compassionate conservation. And what, what do those look like in general? Um, well, so there's four main ones. So the first one would be first, do no harm. 
Mm. Um, and that is, yeah, it's a kind of a, and, you know, remembering that this is kind of a gold standard to be able to live by um, and to challenge some of the conservation research that's being done is, you know, trying to do no harm. And, you know, when we think about that, it's trying to minimize wherever and kind of to that extent possible, um, <clears throat> the harm that could occur. And regardless of some of our intentions behind that and, you know, there's many different cases I can think about where harm is being done in some of the areas of research that I've been involved in, and especially when it comes to something like marking an animal or tagging an animal for wildlife research. You know, that could be applied to say, how can we mark this animal in the most minimal way possible to be able to meet the goals of the conservation program, as well as respecting that kind of inherent value of the animal? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a really interesting one, too. Um one of the things I've heard about in recent years is using um, DNA tracking through hair catches or fur catches, mm -hmm. uh, which I imagine might be a little more involved in some ways. But at the same time, it gives you potentially the best access to non-human animals in the wild without in any way compromising them. Sure. And it depends on what your question is in conservation, though, too. Right. Sure. And that's that's what some of this comes back to is what is the question that's being asked? Um, you know, one of the studies or species that I studied was sea lions mm -hmm. and one of the methods in which they use to be able to mark sea lions. And this is kind of in remote regions is hot iron branding Oof. and hot iron branding is something that it's a third degree burn on an animal for the intention of marking the animal for their lifetime. They never have to go back out and recapture this animal. They can see them from a distance from a boat or aerial flight survey when they're in very remote areas. What information are they collecting from the animal though? You know, the presence and where they're moving to and possibly whether or not the animals had a um, offspring or not. So it also, you know, in conservation, it depends on kind of what question you're trying to get at and what type of method you can use. And, you know, is, is hot iron branding the way to go or can they find another type of marking method um, that can meet those objectives still? Um, and so within compassionate conservation, it's challenging the conservation goals to be able to say, can we actually um, do this in a way that is minimally invasive on the animal? And I'd like to come back to that because I think that is in some ways almost completely contrary to how some conservation is done now, um, mm -hmm. whether academic or government's. Uh, but I'd like to hear, what are the other uh, main tenets of compassionate conservation? Sure. And kind of looking at the, you know, a second one would be the importance of each individual animal. And so recognizing that individualness of the animal, that they are um, animals that have emotional states, um, that they live complex lives and that they're important to some of the communities that they're living in. So we know that, you know, there are a lot of social complexities that can occur within these types of environments. And, you know, often we need to be able to recognize that within conservation biology, how complex that is and that that one individual that we may be sacrificing for the good of conservation actually plays a really crucial role that we don't fully understand in that environment. Um, so just recognizing that they are, um, you know, sentient and that it, they are important. And that's, it, it is fascinating because again, it's, it, it's hard to kind of ask some of these questions without jumping in because I do mm -hmm. understand some of it. And when we look at, the way a lot of biology is done now, um, I say biology, but 
uh, any kind of ology that looks at conservation, uh, frankly, kind of applies here. And this concept that the population is what is of concern is mm -hmm. it, it it's a very um, it makes me think of Descartes and the whole concept of animals being nothing more than automatons. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that with all the research we have now about, uh, you know, animals capable of emotion, of advanced and complex social structures, of tool use, uh, of even potentially morals, um, according to some research, yet we're still only talking about them largely at that population level. Mm -hmm. How did we get, I, I'd almost argue kind of, it, it feels like a circle. We've gone from animals aren't real things. They have no mind. They have no emotion to the need for conservation. And then somehow back to them being just a number in a system largely. And I think it depends on, again, who who's conducting the research, right? So there has been, a, I think there has been a large shift within the conservation community, and there has been a shift to understanding that, um, that the individual animal does matter because there's a recognition that these populations are made up of individuals. Mm -hmm. So depending on the, again, the research group um, organization that is conducting the research, I think there could be more or less um, kind of importance played to the individual animal. Um, but often even in some of the research that I've done, it's, you know, they're, well, you know, we need to sacrifice a few kind of for the greater good. Um, not to say that happens in every program, because that's to say, I wouldn't agree with that. Um, but I, it's often very difficult for us to, as humans, to be able to think about some of the actions that we're causing may be causing harm to these animals. And, you know, to it's it gets very difficult sometimes to be able to match the goals of whether it be a conservation program or whatever um, by understanding that we do need to think about the individual animal's welfare within this. Um, and that can be challenging. And I think often it's easier sometimes to go with the, the path that um, is easiest. Yeah, the path of least resistance as laid out before us. Sure, sure. And that what has been done, right, yeah. to the standard of, oh, this has been done before, this is what we typically do. And I think that's where, you know, compassionate conservation isn't to reinvent conservation or say that, oh, you're faulty and you're not doing this. What it's trying to do is recognize all of these things. And, you know, some, some researchers may be doing more than others, but try to re- highlight this again, bring this to the forefront of saying we should be compassionate when we're doing this research. We should be trying to alleviate harm. We should be trying to recognize these individual animals in here. Um, that I can fall into the third category now of principles of compassion and conservation, which would be looking at um, how animals are kind of categorized right now, right? And mm -hmm. how they are, you know, often when you, when, when I say... <laughs> maybe not to you in particular, but if we, <laughs> if we, if we were to ask somebody, you know, in one of my classes that I teach, I put up a image of a raccoon and I ask the students what word comes to mind besides raccoon when they see that and what would be something that they would say, mm -hmm. pest, right. Or a nuisance or a bother because these animals in our urban environment have been labeled as such because they are scavengers. Um, and so sometimes this, this label that we're giving an animal and this category that we've placed them in, the word pest is used a lot or overabundant. Um, those are different categories that we place 
um, on wild animals that often can change the way in which we talk about them or the ways that we treat them. Um, so trying to, to take that away, take away, take away some of the labels. Yeah. And it's funny too, uh, even the pronoun use for, for animals. Uh, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine and talking about why do people say it? Why, why, mm -hmm. why don't we say they, or when we know he or she, why do we say it? And the question becomes, is that intentional? Have we been taught to do that, to separate ourselves or is it just something that's evolving still as we learn more about non-human animals, as we learn more about their their roles in the universe, so to speak? Um, you know, will and that it's probably adjust? the way that that we've been raised, right? The, mm -hmm. the way in which your your parents spoke about animals, right? And just our own kind of moral and ethical framework with which we work from. Um, it's the same type of thing when we, you know, when I'm talking and I, I say animals, humans often don't think of themselves as animals yep. yet we are right. We belong to the animal kingdom. We are all animals. Um, so even, you know, I get chuckles in my classes when I, when I say human and non-human animals, um, to kind of make that designation. And, and, and there's some who truly struggle with that. Well, and that's interesting. So you're teaching, um, a lot of this to students who are learning about conservation as a whole, I imagine, mm -hmm. uh, who are approaching various levels of biology conservation, uh, probably some agricultural stuff, too. I think you're in that department, aren't you? Um, I am. Yes. Yeah. So there's there's going to be kind of that mix. How do you approach bringing this subject up? Because I, in my experience, at times talking about uh, the moral responsibility or talking about individual animals and just trying to explain that they are individuals. Um, people just immediately kind of pull back. Uh, how are you approaching it in such a way to bring students in to that concept? Well, there's a few different things that we're doing within here. And so I would say the students that are taking some of the courses, because I have a course that is called compassionate conservation. It's mm -hmm. an entire course for an entire semester that we focus, you know, we keep going back to these main kind of principles and we talk about um, within conservation biology, a bunch of different case studies of situations that are happening within animals and how could we bridge the areas of conservation and animal welfare a little bit better in those situations. So the students get exposed to a lot of local issues, um, you know, both in British Columbia and throughout Canada and internationally as well. Um, so those students are actually seeking out this type of course. Okay. Um, but I give guest lectures and other courses that are outside of kind of the, the applied animal biology program here, because um, most of those students are are focused on, you know, or they're interested in animal welfare. And so they already kind of recognize the importance of the individual. Um, so, you know, I've done some guest lecturing and other courses, whether that be in a, a general kind of conservation or forestry course. And, you know, often it's interesting because after a lecture on compassionate conservation, I'll get students come up to me afterwards and be like, that was fascinating. And I have seen, you know, research or I'm involved in research in conservation where I don't feel like they're, they're even considering these things and it's bothered me, but I've just done it because that's the way in which I've been taught and they have been told that's the way it's being done. 
Um, so I think there's a whole, there is a, there's a desire by the students to be able to take in this information and kind of from there, what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. What can we do to help facilitate some change in this area? And, you know, that's where it's, it's really interesting for me and to kind of see some of the, um, you know, some of the movement of the younger generation. Well, I think it's wonderful. And it's, it's something I think, I think that social media has as as many problems as I have with social media, I think has probably (laughs) helped is that some of this, I mean, this is the benefits. This is the positive side of social media where when one person becomes passionate about a subject, they can start sharing content in a way that frankly, never before, and maybe never again, have we been able to, uh, I can share an article you write about why compassionate conservation matters to everyone I know with the click of a button. Uh, yes. Whereas, again, before people had to very directly seek out this knowledge at a library and trying to explain the Dewey Decimal System to children these days <laughs> is I, 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 I can't. I, well, there's this there's this card and you have to look it up by subject, not by name, by subject. And if you don't know what subject it's in, you have to ask a librarian and they're going to pull out a binder. Can't can't we can't we just look at our phone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, it, how about the next step then? So you've got students who want to learn this, and that is outstanding, and that bodes, I think, very well for our future, and I'm very grateful that you were there providing this education for them. How do we then evolve that from students in the classroom uh, learning the the principles and the ethics behind, mm-hmm. and and frankly, at times, the questions that aren't asked, which is, I think, probably what a lot of this is. How do we take yes. from the academic experience to the practical experience. So uh, as our listeners know, you know, we deal with the the BC government on issues of bear uh, conflicts and we deal yes. with various governments on wolf coals and all kinds of stuff. How do I introduce, and maybe not I specifically, but we as advocates introduce this concept in such a way that some of those, what I would call old school um, North American model style managers are looking at it. How do we translate what is right now? I I don't know the body of research well enough to speak to, but is clearly not as accessible yet as the existing body of conservation management. How do we transfer that over into the practical? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a. I mean, that's a good question. I think there's a few questions within that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first, kind of where where do these students go after? How do they take that to the next level of giving some of that practical? And you know, we're trying to give them some of those experiences here, especially um, at UBC. You know, so we've created a field course where they can actually go and kind of see compassionate conservation in action, um, working with rewilded elephants. Um, you know, I'm trying to create a little bit more of a network around that. Um, there's similar researchers around North America that are, that are doing similar. Um, and I think my hope is with at least my students in particular, that it has given them some type of basic understanding of the importance of the individual animal so that when they come across these issues within wildlife conservation, they begin to challenge that a little bit by being informed, not just the emotional reaction, but Hey, here is some research research that has shown, you know, that these animals do have the ability to be able to feel pain in this situation. Why don't we try to find, you know, a more creative manner so that we are not doing as much harm to the animal? So it's having that knowledge, knowledge base for those students going out there who are, who are next generation in those positions who Mm -hmm. could hopefully influence some of the decisions that are being made. 
um, and that they have a voice. You know, some of the things that we do in my class are using some of these, like the bear situation that you just said, we're going to be dealing with that this semester. There are, um, you know, the grizzly bear trophy hunting issue that we had years ago here. I challenge my students to, so I actually get them to write letters to their local MLAs. And what we do is it's an assignment for them. And I'm not telling them what they need to put, but they need to base it in the literature. They need to base it in what is known and they need to have a well-rounded argument that balances both conservation and animal welfare so that they're not negating the the value of conservation because, you know, I'm coming from a background of wildlife conservation and I truly do support what conservation is, that their intent is. Um, it's how we approach that. Um, and so, you know, we challenge them to get involved in um, local type topics that are happening and relevant right now, and then how that influences the, you know, some of these major decisions on the wolf coal and other, um, again, you know, making those public comments. Um, I don't know how much the, <laughs> I don't know the behind the scenes workings on how much the weight they actually put to some of those public comments mm-hmm. or not, not sure. Um, but the, you know, my hope is that, you know, I mean, even graduates of our program have gone on to be working in organizations that are having a voice in some of these issues. And so, you know, kind of training our next, next generation and having them be involved in more. Well, I guess if they, even if they are not the managers tomorrow, they are now going to be in the field and capable of asking questions. And as a former journalist, I have a deep belief in the power of asking questions. Exactly. Um, It really can challenge people to do better. And and I don't Mm -hmm. know what your your level of comfort with this is, but I'm curious for your thoughts on how the um, uh, North American model of wildlife conservation, as it stands now, compares and how it can be improved by some of the, the tenets of compassionate conservation specifically. Uh, the big one that jumps out at me is the the basis of that model of wildlife management is that animals should be used in some way. Uh, that's my interpretation of it. But is this something that can be approached through this new Well, I mean, school? the model, if I believe the model that you're referring to is kind of the general framework of, of wildlife management, and that came out of hunting, yes, right? And kind of the support for hunting to be able to utilize animals. And so, you know, within compassionate conservation, uh, you know, I think it would go against the first mandate of first do no harm, um, you know, if we're just hunting truly for sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a difference between hunting for sport and hunting for putting food on your family's table. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think it goes to, you know, if I kind of want to mention the fourth um, principle of compassionate conservation here, which is coexistence. Um, and, you know, trying to recognize that how can we in this modern world, um, you know, we need to constantly be reflecting on you know, if we're looking at conservation, we're looking at wildlife management, the way that we did it 100 years ago is very different. And it's very different um, kind of humanity now um, to be able to think about what are some modern solutions that we can come up with to be able to allow humans who are encroaching in on wildlife spaces that non-human animals live in, how can we really foster a, an area of coexistence, 
um, you know, that speaks to the bear issue, right? So we're seeing some of this come up because of conflict between humans and non-human animals. Um, and how do we how do we deal with that? And how can we approach that? And so I think the there's many ways. I think we can always be improving. And I think within especially um, you know conservation and science in general, we're always going to be learning new things and new methods and ways to improve. Um, and so challenging conservation to to be a little bit more compassionate, I think, is is not a bad thing. Um, it's not to say conservation is doing things poorly, but how can we how can we can continue to support protecting species? Um, and by doing that, considering that individual animal will only further help um, in that protection. Uh, I want to ask one or two questions about this subject and then get maybe more into student life. But um, mm -hmm. regarding the the challenge of doing better from the perspective of someone not involved in research, I mostly deal with government publications, government decisions, government policy. And from my position, it seems that the wheels of change are extraordinarily slow. Um, it takes a huge public outcry to push policy. Uh, that's what we're seeing again, using the bear example. Um, you know, people of British Columbia are being very clear that what's happening this summer has not been good enough. And there, there are many opinions, of course, mine is the correct one, on how <laughs> to affect change in a positive way. Um, mm -hmm. From the research side, would you say that there is more progress being made? Are, are people truly challenging? Are, is innovation taking place? And maybe on that public policy side, it's just not moving over yet. Oh, for sure. I would say research is far ahead. I mean, we know that there are many different things that we're using right now in the conservation world that do cause harm to animals. And but part of this comes back with how do we how do we push forward um, the policy to be able to change that? How do we get enough of the stakeholders to want to be able to change some of that policy? What's in it for each of them? And then also considering some of the economics behind this. Right. There are large economic constraints that come into play here. And there's different you know, communities that some of these changes may affect as well. Um, and how do we how do we balance all of the, the needs um, within this? Yeah, that's that's one of the questions we're asking these days, too. And it, it's something that came up in California as part of their fur trapping ban. Um, yes. And again, their, their ban is specifically for um, uh, for fur bearing animals trapped for the purpose of their fur. Uh, there is still, quote unquote, nuisance yes. trapping taking place. But uh, one of the yes. things so, yes. they brought up was, yeah, like the number of people and the amount of money you're making doing this doesn't cover the cost of administering the program. Uh, yes. That was one of the reasons they decided to to ban it. And we're starting to ask those questions in Canada. According to the Fur Institute of Canada, there's 25,000 trappers, some of whom are part time. So out of 32 million people. Um, you know, is this actually economically wise to continue doing it this way? And I know in yes. hunting, uh, there is a lot of talk about how hunting pays for most conservation, which in the United States may be true. I do not believe it to be true in Canada. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of challenging existing stuff. Uh, and again, asking those questions. So is uh, how do we maybe move that forward as the public? If if the research is there from the the conservation side, and the public, I think generally speaking, is in favor of doing better for animals, regardless mm -hmm. of your stance. Most people want to see less harm. 
Um, how do we help move that forward? I think keep asking those questions and keep, you know, having the public voice be heard in this and, and having those people that can advocate on the policy side, right? So one of the things I can do as a research is researcher is provide some of the, the research behind that so somebody then can take that and hopefully try to change some of the policy and have that be heard a little bit more. Um, you know, it's working as a collaborative on this. But, you know, it's as I can kind of tell my students, just keep, you know, keep doing what you believe in and keep saying those things that you believe in. Excellent. And uh, we can talk a little bit about some of the coyote research. Do you want to get into that today or do you mm -hmm. want to maybe? OK, so you are sure. working with the Stanley Park. Uh, oh, was it Stanley Park Ecological Society? Is that right? Yeah, the Stanley Stanley Park Ecology Society is who we had partnered with on a <laughs> we had partnered with on um, a portion of a coyote project we were looking at um, to promote coexistence between coyotes in um, the Vancouver area of British Columbia. Yeah, yeah. I remember we we shared the call for uh, for support for that. I think uh, mm -hmm. what kind of research is it, and why is it important? Because this is something that I, I personally find fascinating because coyotes are how I got into wildlife as a as a topic of interest at all. Um, oh, nice. And I, I think it's it's very interesting, the volume of research based on how much persecution happens. So what what's the area of research and why is it so important to do this research? Well, one of the reasons that we were pursuing it is that we are recognizing there seem to be um, more news or media about, um, or they were getting more reports at Stanley Park about um, potential conflicts with coyotes, whether that means we have had an increase in the coyote population here, um, very well could be. We don't know exact numbers in Vancouver because we've never necessarily done a, a tagging study to be able to find that out. Um, but one of the reasons that we wanted to be able to do this is to be able to uh, promote kind of within compassionate conservation, the coexistence and be able to look at how can we better coexist. These animals are going to be here where there are humans, there's going to be coyotes um, because we have garbage, we have rats and therefore the coyotes mm -hmm. will come. Um, and one of the things that we're seeing, especially in Vancouver, is there are, you know, there's, it's very polarizing. Either people are like, yes, you know, we have coyotes in our yard and we're completely okay with it or the opposite. Um, there's a fear around coyotes and that they are going to attack their children or their pets and, um, they must be removed immediately. And so what we were hoping to be able to do, because there's, there's very little, um, science on, urban settings um, for coyotes and how can we deter them from urban, urban settings. So there's a lot of research to be able to say this is how you can deter coyotes in more of a rural setting and, you know, around different types of livestock. Um, but in an urban setting, you know, coyotes are used to loud noises and flashing lights and being around humans. And so that's not necessarily going to scare them off. So how can we deal with um, people who don't want coyotes on their yard and other than going in and having the conservation officer come in and kill them? 
Um, so how can we do that? And one of the ways that we were trying to is put some of the science behind some of the things that are recommended um, by various organizations. And so I had an undergraduate student who was able to run her thesis project looking at um, testing a particular deterrent. And so we worked with Stanley Park on um, being able to have local residents um, volunteer their yards um, as kind of study locations if they know that they had a high presence of coyotes. So first we had to go out and actually uh, monitor it to see. And we were doing this all through the use of um, trail cameras, mm -hmm. so camera traps um, that take pictures. And so we were monitoring their yards. And if they did have a high um, volume of coyotes, then we were testing some. Um, one of the devices that we tested were motion-activated sprinklers. Um, so it's a device that is not going to necessarily harm the animal. It may give them a little bit of a scare, um, to be able to deter them from the yard. And we wanted to test, um, because they're used, you know, they're advertised, oh, this can you be used for coyotes or deer or various other wildlife, but sure. nobody's ever tested it. <laughs> so yeah. we wanted to put the science behind that. Um, and it, we did show that, you know, if those those sprinklers were up, um, that the animals would avoid that where the area of the sprinkler was. Um, they wouldn't avoid that area altogether. You had to make sure that the, the sprinkler range um, reached where they were walking um, and it would change kind of their path. And so if you truly didn't want them on their yard, using something like that could be a, um, a good option. Um, and so we want to be able to explore some of the other type of de deterrents because right now in Calgary, unfortunately, they are having some organizations there that that are using um, clay pellets yes. to deter coyotes and shooting them. And that, to me, is highly inhumane. The other thing with so, that, and this is based entirely on my knowledge of dog behavior uh, and mm -hmm. aversion conditioning of dogs, but what we know about things that are remote, like a shock collar, is the dog doesn't make the connection that you want the dog yeah. to make between the pain stimulus yeah and whatever behavior you're trying to change they just feel yes. pain uh and yes. it's kind of a it's what they happen to be looking at at the time or what they happen to hear at the time uh it's not yeah. you went too far or you came too close or you went left instead of right yeah. no it's just pain yeah. uh, and pain eventually as yoda said leads to anger um so you actually yeah. increase aggression in a dog by trying to train them that way uh so yeah. I, I kind of applied I mean, the same logic with the clay pellets, I mean, one of the things that they would be doing with that is you would have to constantly be in that location and shooting a coyote every time that it came around that way. I'm not advocating for that in any means. Yeah. Um, but that would be the way that you're you're not going to do it once or twice and then expect that they're never going to come by there again. Some of them may not, depending on their personality. But something like, you know, a sprinkler, which is going to give a spray of water, they actually listen for the noise of it too. You can mm -hmm. actually see their ears kind of listen and see where it's going. Um, that is going to deter them off of a particular area, right? It's, it's going to change the way that they're using that. But once we took them down, they will, they'll come back. Yep. Right. So you have to, you have to find, and they may habituate to that. That's the other thing we want to test long-term, you know, in a year, will they just, you know, maybe there are some that actually love it. <laughs> <laughs> you never um, know. Uh, that's actually, there's, there that, are, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, but, you know, testing some of that and actually putting some of that behind there. So, you know, thinking about the compassionate conservation within there, how can we how can we approach this issue um, by truly trying to coexist with these animals um, and in a way that we're doing the least amount of harm possible?
Yeah, it's it's I I, I also firmly believe that the mother of innovation is um, I can't remember how that goes now. I feel like an idiot. You know what I'm trying to say? Can you answer? Can you fill in the yes. blank there? No, I can't fill in oh. the blank there. <laughs> Necessity is the mother of innovation. That's the quote. Um, uh, okay. So when you say you can't go out and shoot that coyote or you can't remove that coyote, mm. you have to find another way. That's when we find these innovations. And that's actually yes. in line with, I think it was a Defenders of Wildlife in part study in, I want to say, Utah or Wyoming where they found a lot of these things were effective, but they had to rotate them uh, with yes, canids. I don't know if it was sure. wolves or coyotes, but yeah, it was, it was, they said like all of these work, but you can't just put it out and expect it to always work because they will eventually exactly. get used to it. And that was one little thing you said I'd love to talk about. And maybe this is an entirely other episode, but the difference between used to and not fearing and habituation, because in the media and with certain government officials, these words get used, and I don't think they're always accurate. A coyote yeah. may be comfortable hearing a car horn because they're around cars a lot. That doesn't mean they've lost their fear entirely. It just means they're yep. now comfortable with this. Yes, or they're, or they're not reacting to it, right? But in exactly. certain situations, they may react to it. And it's, you know, I mean, that is something that, you know, we, we've seen this come up too, that, oh, well, they're habituated to being here. They're, you know, yeah. they're habituated to food or the challenge that you have within there is have you actually done those observations to ensure that <laughs> what you're saying is correct? Yes. And I find that often in the media or the reactions to this, you know, with the bears, oh, well, they're, you know, they're habituated to food. Well, how much observations have been done on this animal to yep. actually make that statement? And what is the, you know, even the conservation officer's definition of habituation, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And it would be very different than what we may consider habituation um, from a scientific standpoint. Um, and a lot of, a lot of times the behavioral responses of the animals, I truly believe you need to be studying that. You can't have this, um, you know, kind of immediate reaction to a situation like that, unless, of course, there is a, a you know, an immediate danger where there is, you know, a, a person obviously yes. being attacked or something under that nature. Um, but simply an animal being present in an area to me does not mean that it is simply habituated. It can also just be seeking food. Yep. And of course, a mother bear and her two cubs running away from people means that someone is in imminent harm and they must be killed. But that's a different story. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The, yes. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. I don't need to say any more about that. Uh, yes. The other aspect of that too is who is making the observation about the animal's behavior. Uh, this came mm -hmm. up a lot, and this is one of the reasons I ended up leaving media. I got so frustrated by this uh, all the time, and people, I got in trouble because I was very vocal about it to my colleagues. Um, but. When someone would say, and I've been to many meetings talking about this, someone said, I saw a coyote and it didn't run away from me. And I was screaming my, I was screaming and waving my arms, making myself big and say, okay, where were you? And they tell me, they say, mm -hmm. and where was the coyote? And it's 50 yards away on a trail. It's like, so mm -hmm. why should the coyote react to you at 50 yards out? Mm -hmm. uh, and the example I'd end up using for people in the suburbs or the city is it's the difference of knowing that there's someone uh, you know, down the street wearing a trench coat at night and someone running across the street at you. Yes. Right. Like that's creepy. You know, that's yes. But... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. That is creepy. 
Um, but you know, this was, I mean, coyotes are, are portrayed negatively in the, in the media. And also, you know, there has been a lot of, there has been a lot of support of the work of coexistence here in Vancouver as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there have been some reports where, you know, Oh, a coyote was stalking a woman and yes. her small child. And what it turns out to be is, well, actually the coyote was walking on the sidewalk behind them doesn't mean it's stalking them. Mm-hmm. Coyotes use sidewalks. When we were setting up cameras at one of our, our field sites in East Vancouver, a very populated area, and all of a sudden I hear my colleague, you know, screaming, go away, coyote. And the coyote is just walking along the sidewalk, yep. right? It wasn't stalking anybody. They're urban coyotes. They use they use a path of least resistance if they can. Absolutely. Right? Um, so... Yeah. And there's different types of personalities that we have too with the coyotes. There's some bold ones. There's shyer ones. There's yeah. 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 The, I've got a whole shtick about, uh, what's well, not a shtick. It's an actual presentation, but about media, uh, sensationalism <laughs> and coyotes. It's, it's, it, it actually keeps me up at night. Um, but moving right along. We get into that in, in, in one of my classes, the Compassionate Conservation class, we actually get into the um, discussion of the influence of media on conservation because it's really important to be able to consider that. So there's some oh, things yeah. that can actually do harm to conservation goals, but there's other things that also can bring, um, you know, can highlight important issues, um, as I'm sure you know, right? Yes. And it's, um, it's a double-edged sword there with some of these things. Uh, well, my quick anecdote about that, and it's the one one of the ones I use in my presentation is I think it was Collingwood, Ontario. Uh, for about six months, the media had been running articles about coyotes, and they never really got into it. They just kept repeating sort of the Ministry of Natural Resources. Uh, this was before it was MNRF, and uh, saying, "Oh well, coyotes belong here. Uh, if you see a coyote, try and scare it away. Coyote behavior is considered aggressive if, and it's all the usual crap." Um, if mm-hmm. you feel your life is in danger, please contact police. But it was often sort of in this tone of, um, coyotes are a problem and here's how you can prevent it from being more of a problem. So it was always kind of negative. And then they started running articles about how scary people, how scared people were of these coyotes. And then one night, a police officer responded to a call of a coyote walking down the streets uh, it looked ill. So for some reason, and we never found out why, the officer decided to Probably run over. Um, well, so it decided to run over the coyote to kill it. Uh, we, this was captured on cell phone. Uh, like I've seen it. It's very clear what happened. And what ended up coming out uh, after this is that it wasn't a coyote. It was someone's elderly dog whose fence door had blown open during a storm. And just wandered out on the street mm. and was partially deaf and partially blind and didn't respond to the officer honking their horn. Uh, mm. But to me, when you look at it sort of from 10,000 feet up, you can see this obvious progression of coyotes are something to be feared. Coyotes are something to be mm-hmm. feared. Coyotes are something to be feared doing something in response to a fear of coyotes. Uh, mm-hmm. And it wasn't even a coyote in the end, which just kind of... I don't know if it makes it better or worse, but nonetheless, uh, to, to me, it was a very clear progression of the media talking about it in this way yes. and then the community reacting to that. And we know the power yeah. of the media. Um, I, oh, yes. Again, that's I. every headline I would write, you have to consider what impact is this going to have? Oh, 
Oh, for sure. I mean, and that was one of the things when I was being interviewed about some of the coyote research, I was really nervous about that because I didn't know how they were going to spin it in the end and what yeah. type of, um, you know, what type of message they wanted to say out of the research that we were doing. Um, so we were very cautious with that. But, you know, you know, one of the points that you're kind of bringing up and making here is that, you know, I truly do believe with some of this, though, we need to be teaching children young about some of this, because even look at wolves, right? Mm -hmm. I have a I have a six year old daughter. And in so many different movies, books, everything, wolves are the big bad wolf who are attacking things. And so she thinks, you know, she sees that. And I'm like, no, wolves aren't like that. She goes, well, why do they why do they do that? Why are they showing this? And I was like, well, because even trying to explain to a six-year-old why, why humans are trying to create these different types of um, images of these animals. And that is the way that then they grow up and they are used to thinking about them. We create a fear um, of, of certain animals in humans. Yeah. And the best part is it, it comes yeah. back to a whole don't go in the woods by yourself at night because it's the 16th century. Um, yes, <laughs> like that's, that's what it stems from largely, but, yeah, yep. uh, anyway, well, it's I want, not the 16th century anymore. <laughs> true. Uh, I'd like to talk very briefly about students though, who are interested in learning more about this because UBC, uh, from my perspective, again, as a non-student is very, very advanced in a lot of these programs. There are a ton of animal welfare, conservation ethics. Um, uh, you know, mm. I talked with Dr. Elizabeth Ormandy about her work, uh, also at UBC, uh, yep. I believe Sarah Dubois does research out of UBC. Uh, it's it has a very strong presence for animal related stuff. Uh, I'm sure that's the technical term for it. Outside <laughs> of UBC, though, it can be difficult to find. What are your recommendations to students uh, or potential students or folks like me who always think about going back to school and never do? Um Where's the best place to start? Like, if this is what I want to learn about, how do I get to that point? Because this isn't first year, you know, bio 101. No, it's not. And, you know, I mean, this is something that I'm I'm currently trying to work on right now is th exactly what you're saying. How can we how can we make this a little bit more accessible to um, outside of academia? Mm -hmm. um, and right now, I don't know if I have a good answer for you other than organizations um, such as the Fur Bears, such as other organizations that really advocate for coexistence and reducing harm. Um, it's the individual organizations. And what I hope to be able to do is kind of build this. Um, kind of network of even just whether that be here in British Columbia or Canada of examples of organizations doing compassionate conservation work um, and being able to then translate that to through the, the, the kind of non-academic means um, to be able to have that available to the public too, because it's a um, it's an area of great importance and passion of mine in particular um, to be able to educate people on this and how they can start to have their voice heard and, and be able to kind of make a difference within this area as well. To learn more about compassionate conservation, check out the recommended reading list provided by Dr. Walker in this week's show notes. I'd like to thank Dr. Walker for joining us, and of course, all of you for listening. Remember, you can follow me on social media, at Defender Radio on Facebook and Twitter, and at Howie Michael on Instagram. You can also directly support Defender Radio by becoming a patron. This gives you access to a couple of behind-the-scenes things, some blogs, uh, bloopers, things like that, and 
take some of the burden of hosting costs, equipment upgrades, and so on from the fur bears. So just go to patreon.com slash Defender Radio or follow the links in this week's show notes. For roughly 25 to 50 cents an episode, your help can go a long, long way. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and stay informed and stay strong. Defender Radio.